when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the big Brexit debate in the House of Commons and whether the government has recently released legal advice will make any difference at all to proceedings. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor, George Parker, white editor, James Blitz, deputy opinion editor, Miranda Green, and columnist, Robert Shrimsley. Thank you all for joining. And if you like this episode of FT Politics, don't forget to subscribe through all those usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. Or you could even leave us a nice little review on the iTunes podcast store. So the big Brexit debate began this week. Theresa May opened five days of back and forth between MPs, which will lead up to the meaningful vote next Tuesday on whether to give the thumbs up or the thumbs down to her deal. And so far, it's looking like a quite resolute thumbs down. George Parker, before we begin talking about the debate, what came right before it was particularly interesting. Dominic Grieve, who's the former Attorney General, came up with this amendment to the programme motion, which essentially sets out the terms of the debate. And what he has got passed through the Commons says that MPs are allowed to amend whatever happens if Theresa May's deal fails. Have I got that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, basically, this is a classic power struggle between Parliament, the legislature and the executive about what happens if Theresa May's deal is voted down next Tuesday. And what you saw there was a power grab by Parliament. And the passing of Dominic Grieve's amendment means that if Theresa May's deal is voted down, that Parliament will then take control of what happens next. And the significance of that is it means that Parliament will be able to instruct the government not to allow, for example, Britain to leave the EU without a deal. That's very significant, of course, because that's one of the main hopes of the Eurosceptics and the Conservative Party, that if they do vote Theresa May's deal down, there's still the hope we can leave with a clean break, leave without a deal on WTO terms, and everything will be okay. The significance of the Grieve Amendment is that a predominantly pro-European parliament is now in control of the process. And that should be quite worrying to Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg. The general dynamic we've seen this week, Miranda, is one of Parliament, to coin a phrase, taking back control of this process because ever since the referendum and ever since Article 50 was triggered, the whole Brexit train has been driven by Downing Street and Theresa May. So in terms of the red lines, leaving the single market, leaving the customs union, that was a decision by the executive to do that. And MPs have had their say on bits and bobs along the process, but really they've not done anything substantive. What we've seen this week with the Grieve Amendment, plus more talk about, of course, Norway, plus our favourite topic, and also (laughs) the legal advice, which we'll come on to later in the podcast, is MPs firmly sensing the Prime Minister is in a weak position and is not able to drive her will through Parliament and said, "Okay, 
we're taking over. Exactly so. And you've got this phenomenon of Mrs May desperately trying to make all the running. I mean, her broadcast interviews, her zigzagging across the country to make the case for her deal. She'd been utterly manic in her efforts. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, this cross-party effort by the pro-European moderates has managed to get this amendment accepted And I think it's very interesting also because when the moderates within the Conservative Party, including Dominic Grieve, who's moved this amendment, have tried to sort of manoeuvre the government before, they've ended up backing down. I mean, we had that slightly comic period where Dominic Grieve did not back his own amendment last time they were all sort of marched up the hill and then marched down again. If this time the pro-European moderates in the Tory party really stand firm, then that they have sort of gone to battle with Downing Street and with their own leader. The other thing to mention is the timing is intriguing. On Monday, we will get the ruling from the European Court of Justice on whether it's possible for the UK to unilaterally pause or withdraw from the Article 50 process. So that, should the UK choose to exercise it, would be also giving the UK the power to extend the process, possibly open up for a different negotiation or adjust the terms or make time for another referendum. So there's a lot of different elements in play, which means that the action has moved from things that are within Mrs May's own control. So the thing is, George, if when Mrs May's deal is voted down next Tuesday, the government then has to respond with its plan B. Now, Downing Street will say firmly that there is no plan B, but we know there have been conversations and there's been reports this week that some aides of Theresa May are saying you need to plan for a second referendum, potentially putting her deal against Remain. Other aides have been saying to the Prime Minister, well, in fact, we now need to pivot towards the Norway Plus thing, which lots of people in the cabinet want. So clearly those conversations are taking place about what happens with the plan B. But what's really going to matter is what Parliament wants there. And there is some rump of opinion for a softer Brexit. There isn't one for a harder Brexit. And there isn't quite one yet for a second referendum. Yeah, I think that's true. I think there's a possibility that a whole series of propositions could be tested in the House of Commons and all of them could lose, including, of course, starting with Theresa May's deal. But as you say, it's hard to see there being a majority, certainly not at this stage, for a second referendum because of the democratic disruption that would cause. It's hard to see there being a majority for the Norway Plus model because basically that contains many of the elements of Theresa May's deal with added vassalage and added rule-taking and added financial contributions and free movements of people. And so you could end up with a situation where none of these proposals are actually viable. And then, of course, questions arise about what do you do then? Well, another general election, I suppose, is one possibility. Or ultimately, by default, because all other options have been exhausted, maybe we do come back to this question of the second referendum and all these things have been tested. And the Financial Times and also the Times have had their best efforts at sort of doing flowcharts of all the different things that could flow from a defeat for Mrs May. Times one ran to two pages. It's a fiendishly complicated set of potential scenarios that play out if she loses. And one thing that's going to matter on this, George, is the order in which things are voted in. Because if you're a pro-European Labour MP, you might think, okay, Norway Plus is better, but you will still harbour ambitions in your heart for stopping Brexit. So when all these votes come up, one presumes next week after Theresa May has lost the vote or possibly the week after, what they vote on first matters. Because if they have to vote on Norway Plus, then they might actually say, we're not going to vote for this and then try and win a second referendum or vice versa. Well, that's right. Yeah, the sequencing of the votes is very important. And 
you know, there's quite a lot of discussion in pro-European circles about when exactly you put down the amendment to call for a second referendum. If you do it too early, it could be heavily defeated, and I think it would be heavily defeated in the current political context. But if you try it again after Theresa May's deal has been defeated, then if all other options have been exhausted, you stand more chance. So yeah, you're precisely right. The sequencing and the timing of when these amendments are taken is absolutely crucial. So it's really interesting what George is saying, because he's basically saying every possible outcome currently seems impossible. But actually, time will move on. We will increasingly approach the March 29th deadline and something will have to happen. You know, it's not possible to have no outcome. And I think as you sort of watch these weeks, each week feels like a crisis, but the mood changes. And one thing that has changed this week, as you said in your introduction, Seb, is that Parliament seems to be asserting itself in a different way. And even you've had kind of really interesting figures from the recent political past rise up and have their say and make very good points. You had Michael Heseltine give a very good, very short speech in the Lords in which he said, the poorest in society are going to pay for this. The UK will get poorer and they've been misled. And also he said, it is the Conservative Party who will be blamed. This is the fault of the Conservative Party. Do not think we'll escape the blame and I cannot put my name to this. And you also had Margaret Beckett, former Labour Foreign Secretary, reversing her previous early political life as a strong Eurosceptic and saying the UK's place is in Europe. So you've had a lot of people kind of asserting themselves and using their voice. And I think George is right. It's a question of what is the point at which it's safe to make the final assertion of the will of Parliament and will they actually have the guts to do it? What Miranda is speaking about, George, is, of course, the debate that began, that was opened by the Prime Minister. And this has allowed every MP imaginable to have their say on Brexit. And these are running for eight hours a day, right up until next Tuesday evening, when we're going to hit that meaningful vote there. And as well as the moments Miranda mentioned for Margaret Beckett, there were some notable interventions from Ian Blackford, who's the head of the SNP in Westminster, who did a very staunch defence of the European project. And of course, Boris Johnson, who stood up to talk about chucking checkers and criticising the Prime Minister's thing. But he was in fact heckled by his own MPs. Yeah, Boris Johnson's speech was pretty lamentable, actually. It was quite long. It was basically a rehash of many of the sentiments he's expressed in his Daily Telegraph column every week for the last two or three months. And as I was listening to it, I thought, when is he actually going to say what he would do instead? And as he went on and on about vassalage and sovereignty and all the rest of it, and sort of sounded very Churchillian, you could feel that the hackles rising on the Tory benches. And eventually Roger Gale, a Tory grandee, stood up and said, well, basically, what would you do? And Boris Johnson said he was coming to that. But out of a very, very long speech criticising Theresa May's deal, there was very little on exactly how he would go about taking Britain out other than to say that we could have some sort of managed no-deal exit and everything would be fine. So it was a bad day for Boris Johnson, actually. And it was quite interesting, I thought, that there was a sense of frustration that the Eurosceptics, while very vocal in criticising Theresa May's deal, seemed rather sketchy on exactly what they would do instead. And with the no-deal option starting to be closed off, that question is being asked increasingly behind closed doors by members of the European Research Group, the Eurosceptories themselves, actually. This question about closing off options is an interesting one, Miranda, because 
Parliament is making it say, as our legislative body, it can pass motions, but it can't come up with acts of Parliament. It can't actually make laws here. And this is when everyone loves to talk about constitutional crises. We had one ever so slightly with the legal papers that was resolved when the government buckled. But there is going to be this interesting moment about at some point, as you said, Parliament will have to decide on a softer Brexit, a second referendum, or eventually to back Mrs May's deal. There is going to be an interesting moment to see whether Downing Street listens to that. And I think, as you saw with the legal papers, Downing Street did buckle eventually. It didn't ignore Parliament. But if Parliament voted overwhelmingly for a Norway plus Brexit, then you would think Number 10 would have to do that. And it's the same with a no deal. If a motion gets passed that rules out no deal, Number 10 cannot do that. But it's quite hard to see how they can do that because either you'd have to withdraw Article 50 or extend Article 50. There is no other way to avoid a no deal Brexit. It is still the default option. It is, but the Grieve Amendment, which shows the determination by the Commons not to let that happen, does make it feel less likely. And that weakens May's hand in the rhetoric she's been using for the last few weeks, where she's been threatening Remainers with a no-deal Brexit and hardline Brexiters with no Brexit at all. It makes those two options, those two threats, as it were, sound sort of ill-weighted as she plays them off against each other. Actually, I think those threats have had another unintended consequence for her, which is that when she's said to one group, the Remainers, it's either no deal or no Brexit, they just hear the possibility of no Brexit and it sort of emboldens them and also emboldens the emerging we'd quite like managed no deal outcome on the ERG side to hear that she's even sort of entertaining that as a possibility. And it brings us back to what we were discussing in the last podcast, actually, which is that how do you create an appetite for a compromise solution when a compromise will actually satisfy neither side of the argument and whether Parliament can pull that off and make a positive proposal that sways Downing Street to try something else is rather debatable. And that's really what we get to this week, George, is that nothing is changing for the Prime Minister. People I've spoken to in Downing Street said really last weekend was the moment they hoped or expected the tide would turn. You would see some MPs peeling off and saying, I don't really like this deal, but it's the best compromise on offer. Whereas, in fact, opinions seem to be hardening against the Prime Minister at the moment. You've heard quite strong language from the Democratic Unionists, the ERG, who are simply saying we are not being swayed by Mrs May's option partly because this narrative has developed that we can lose this vote and not lose Brexit or not lose Mrs May. So come the vote on Tuesday, it doesn't look like she's going to win it, but there is also some talk that they may even delay the vote. Well, the problem, yeah, as we've just been discussing, is Theresa May's fighting on two fronts. She's got a load of implacable Eurosceptics who don't like the deal because they think it's a sellout and uh, seem determined to vote against the deal in any circumstance and they seem to be defying what one may call the logic bullets that are being fired at them this week. But then you've also got the pro-Europeans who now glimpse the possibility that if the deal's rejected, we could find ourselves on a path which leads to a second referendum and no Brexit at all. So she's facing this formidable coalition. And as you say, defeat looks certain next week. And there is a debate going on inside Downing Street. And on Thursday afternoon, there was an emergency meeting of cabinet ministers to discuss what on earth to do next. Now, Downing Street's view officially is that the vote will take place on Tuesday, that the time has come to test the mood of Parliament. And if she loses, she can go to Brussels and say to them, well, look, I told you there was a problem with the deal, and in particular with the Irish backstop, how can you help me? 
And there's another school of thought which says that if she is defeated so heavily, and let's say by more than 100, maybe 150 or so, that would cause so much damage to her individually and to the government, it could be irreparable. So isn't it better to delay the vote and for Theresa May to go to Brussels first, try and get a better deal in Brussels, and then come back? Now, Downing Street seems to have come down in favour of pressing ahead with the vote, but I should say that they've left themselves a technical way of getting out of this vote right up until the last, literally the last minute on Tuesday evening. So I think if they are heading for an inevitable defeat, I wouldn't be surprised if at the last minute they do decide to pull the vote and for Theresa May to make a mercy dash over to Brussels and put herself on her hand and knees and plead with the EU27 to help her out. But that's going to look pretty bad, Miranda, a Prime Minister that is, you know, in such a weak position, having to pull this major vote at the last moment. And you do have to wonder, as you said, is this can-kicking ever going to end? Indeed so, and it plays very badly here at home. May has had an incredible appetite for humiliation and punishment, but you can't help feeling that at some point even she will have had enough. listening to FT Politics, the podcast on British politics from the Financial Times. So as well as trying to count the numbers in Parliament, the other big news this week has been about legal advice. MPs have desperately been trying to get the government to release the official verdict on Mrs May's Brexit deal, but the government refused. Concern it would set a worrying precedent for the relationship between confidential advice and the Cabinet. But the House of Commons moved and the advice was released. Plus, we also had an interesting ruling on Article 50 that could have big impact on the Brexit process. So, James Blitz, let's begin with this whole thing about legal advice. So, Geoffrey Cox, who is the very loud and boisterous Attorney General, offered his view on Theresa May's Brexit deal to the Cabinet. This was outlining the pros and the cons and the implications, and of course, a lot of it about that all-crucial backstop. That advice remained in private, as most advice does to the Cabinet. MPs felt otherwise and force the government's hand. Yes, that's right. I mean, if you stand back and look at this enormous panorama of things that are going wrong for this government, I actually put the legal advice problem a bit lower down. Legal advice and what the Attorney General says is one of those things that has an enormous resonance in British politics, largely because there was this enormous row in the Iraq war about the legal advice that was given by the Attorney General Lord Goldsmith to Tony Blair. And that was a co-celebre, and that was handled extremely badly by the government. And there's no question that Goldsmith did change his advice, and many people wondered about that. Here, the question of legal advice has been less resonant, really. There is nothing illegal that the UK government is doing. And all that Cox was really being required to do was give an explanation about how the withdrawal agreement would work, in particular in regards to the so-called backstop and the customs arrangement the UK has signed up to. Now, why the British government decided that it would fight this thing tooth and nail so it wasn't published isn't to me clear, because in the end, they were humiliated in the House of Commons, as you've said. But the fact is, what came out in the advice is pretty much what everybody knew anyway. This was really about a stick to hit Theresa May's Brexit deal with Robert, that opposition MPs from Labour to the DUP to Remainers, the Green Party to the Liberal Democrats, they all wanted this advice out there to try and say to Theresa May, your deal is going to keep us locked in this backstop and we're never going to escape. Yes, that's exactly right. The point is that Theresa May has been trying to elide this issue in her public statements by suggesting it's not quite as terrible or as permanent and it'd be easy to get out of it. And in fact, 
Everybody knows that that is not correct. Other people in government have been quite clear about this, but the legal advice is a way to say, look, even your own lawyer is saying this. As James said, when it was finally issued, it didn't tell us anything we didn't really know. But the fact the government tried to stop it being issued for reasons that aren't only about political embarrassment made people think it was worth more than it was. To be honest, I think the actual significance of this vote was in the numbers themselves, in the majority against the government, which gives you some indication of the kind of problems that she's got getting anything done. So when this came forward, James, there was a neutral motion from Labour a couple of weeks ago that sort of amended the government to release this advice. The government ignored it, and there was questions whether that would then be in contempt of the House. And Sir Keir Sharma, who is the opposition Brexit secretary and a former director of public prosecutions, he brought forward this motion. It was debated for three hours on Tuesday, and the House voted it through, which was quite an extraordinary moment, which means Theresa May's government is the first government in British history to be held in contempt of Parliament. Yes, and in terms of the optics, it's terrible. It is all part of the drama of this moment when this government simply does not seem to be in control of what is happening in the House of Commons. And once Parliament had decided earlier on in this process that the advice had to be published, it was extremely stupid of the government to try and resist that. But I go back to my original point, as Robert has agreed with me. When the advice actually came out, it didn't really tell us anything we didn't know. It was putting things a bit more forcefully and people can point to the problems that there are with the backstop. A wiser government, a government which was more tactically astute, would have given up on this issue a long time ago and moved on because they were always on a hiding to nothing. With this actual advice that came out, Robert, as James said, there was not much new in there, but it really did confirm this issue with the blighted backstop, which is something I know you're not a big fan of, but it essentially said that if Mrs May's deal were to get through, it looks very unlikely, but if it were and we have the transition period, then we hit about July 2020 and there's no comprehensive trade deal in sight, then either you have to continue the implementation period or the backstop will kick in. And if that happens, the legal advice says that we would very much struggle to get out of it. And even if we try to argue that the EU is acting in bad faith in negotiations, which is what a lot of Brexiters think might happen, they would not have much chance to actually take that forward as a real argument to get us out of it. Well, that's right. I mean, th- that was one thing I think Geoffrey Cox was quite clear about, the good faith principle, which is talked about in the treaty and in the political declaration is a legal term and one of the things we've all found out whenever we deal with lawyers is that there is a difference between plain English and legal terminology and proving bad faith is very, very difficult indeed and therefore it is not much of a safeguard. It is not much of a defence to say, oh, we can go to the European Court of Justice and say Europe is not acting in good faith on this matter. You'd have to really prove the most sinister type of plot to show it wasn't the case. So it's just not much of a safeguard. And do you have any sympathy with this argument that Andrea Leadsom, who's the leader of the House of Commons, was making this week, that essentially... The precedent set by this could be quite a dangerous one because the cabinet receives legal advice on all sorts of matters, particularly on intelligence, security and military matters. And now the parliament has proven it, it could get the advice for this particular matter. It could do so again in the future. Yes, I do think it's a dangerous precedent. And step aside from this issue, the idea that private advice can always be demanded just because it's politically expedient to do so. And this was not like the Iraq war case where there's an issue around whether the country was obeying the law. This is about advice and opinion about how things might work out. Important, but not quite the same thing. And I think, although Parliament's always had this right, so it's not a new principle that Parliament can essentially do what it likes, there is a danger to good governance if all advice can always be summoned all of the time 
as long as the opposition parties have the numbers to get it, because that will change the way advice is written and given. It will change the way it is minuted. And, you know, we all in our own lives have advice that we get in private. And it's not that it's particularly damning or terrible, but it is private and people behave differently and they're a bit more candid in private than they might be in public. And that's important. I think there is a difference between transparent government and completely see-through government. I very much agree with what you've said. I think one of the worst things that's going on at the moment in Whitehall and the civil service is that officials, and we're not here talking about the Attorney General, he's not an official, but in a way he is acting as an official here, as the person giving Cabinet legal advice. Officials need to be able to give that advice without let or hindrance, without the risk of something coming out. And it's because now there is this increasing sense, it happened as a result of the inquiry into the Iraq, Iraq war, because there is the sense that everything that is said to ministers is going to somehow come out and be minuted, that people are unwilling to actually speak frankly about what they really think. And I think it's the difference it's a piece of journalism, you see things described as secrets all the time, secret documents. In fact, they're not secret, they're just private. There is a difference between things being done in secret and things being done in private. I remember, I think it was a former UN Attorney General saying that the best way to work was open negotiations but conducted in private. So everyone knows what you're doing, but the minutiae of this has to be able to take place behind closed doors sometimes. Now, the other legal thing that was interesting this week, James, is this long-running case about withdrawing Article 50 because the UK put its letter into the EU in March 2017 to begin the withdrawal process. But there's been a lot of questions about how and when that could be revoked. Now, we obviously had the Gina Miller case, which was about triggering Article 50 in the first place, which went to the UK Supreme Court. That was ruled that it had to be, and Parliament voted. Hundreds of MPs voted to trigger Article 50. But there's pro-EU campaigners have been really harbouring this idea that Article 50 could be withdrawn or it could be paused or what have you. And grassroots campaigners have been taking this to the highest levels and the Advocate General of the ECJ ruled this week that it could be unilaterally withdrawn. So say Mrs May's deal doesn't go through, say Parliament decides to halt a no-deal Brexit, then the UK could say we're withdrawing Article 50 and that would be accepted by EU law. That could have very significant consequences. Well, it could, and there's no question that for those people who've campaigned for this, this does change the optics a bit. I'm still pretty doubtful, to be honest, whether it changes things that much. I mean, we're assuming that Mrs May's deal is going to be voted down. And I think in the next three months, the key question is what is going to replace that? That is the key issue before the House of Commons. And in my view, the May deal is not definitively voted down until something comes along to replace it, either a second referendum, the Norway Plus option, or manage no deal, one of those three. And that's what we have to wait to see. Now, if none of those happen, then I suppose we could drift towards no deal. That is a possibility. And then Parliament might turn around and say, well, look, we want to somehow stop the clock on Article 50. But I still don't understand what the mechanics would be in terms of how that relates to the EU. I mean, it would be easier for the UK now to say we want to stop, have a serious reconsideration on a completely new path. But I don't think we can use this judgment by the Advocate General, if it is confirmed, just to say, well, we'll stop for a bit and come back in a short period of time. In, I don't think fact, that's going to in, be allowed. In fact, the advice recommendation is very clear on that. What it can't be used is to stop the clock and start again. It has to be a clear and demonstrably genuine desire to reverse reverse position and stay in the European Union. The recommendation was quite clear on that point. I think the other point, which I think James was clearly touching on, is that there is a difference between what is legally possible and what is politically possible. So even if this ruling is confirmed next week, 
It doesn't mean that Parliament could simply just do it, because although it would have the legal right to force this issue, I think politically it is impossible, having put the issue to a referendum in the first place, to take it off the table without using a referendum. So I don't think any politicians would feel comfortable just reversing Brexit without going back to the people. But it is a key argument for Remain campaigners and the People's Vote campaign, because when this ruling comes through on Monday, very handy timing, the day before the meaningful vote, they can say, we now have a clear legal ruling. If Parliament or the people of the UK want to withdraw Article 50, we can do it. We can stop Brexit. Yes, that's correct. There is a clear pathway which does not require the help of the rest of the European Union. Of course, if you were to do it by a referendum, you still only got three months or so to get it done, which probably requires Article 50 to be frozen in any case. So there is still a bit of help that will be needed from the rest of the EU. And finally, just to you both about where we're at as we're approaching the final stages of this, the meaning of vote is going to be on Tuesday. We've seen a lot of debate we talked about earlier in the podcast this week. The working assumption in Westminster is that at the time of recording, the vote is still going ahead and that Mrs May is going to lose that vote. What do you expect to sort of see next week as the events pan out, James? I don't think the vote can be pulled. I think there's a lot of discussion about it. This is an instinct. It's not necessarily based on what people are saying, but I don't see how it can be pulled. You can pull a vote for one of two reasons, either because you are going to put something substantially different down in terms of the deal, and that isn't going to happen, or alternatively, because you've got lots of time on your hands and you can come back to this in, say, four or five months. But you don't have that either, because the clock is now ticking so close to the point where real decisions have to be made. So my view is she will go ahead, I think she'll lose pretty badly. And then what happens after that largely depends on what the cabinet decides in terms of Norway plus as an option and what Corbyn decides in terms of second referendum versus whatever other options he has on his table. And Robert? I think the vote can be pulled. And although I'm not certain it will be, I think there's a decent chance that it will be because if you are a government, you do not let your prime minister get beaten by 100 votes on an issue of major significance, let alone minor significance. I think that if they are still looking down the barrel of a really massive defeat on Monday night, they will be very, very tempted to pull the vote and find an excuse like the prime minister going back to Brussels to see what else she can get. And we know, in fact, they have put the mechanisms in place to allow them to pull it should they wish to do so. So will it be pulled? Not definitely. Could it be? Certainly. And it's the question still stands again. If they pull the vote, then they've got to vote on it sometime because obviously Mrs May's favourite political tactic is to kick the can down the road as much as possible. But you do have to think eventually at some point in this process, somebody is going to have to make a decision and time is running out for that. Well, it would be nice, wouldn't it? But I mean, there is no majority in Parliament for most courses of action. As James says correctly, as long as there is no other plan on the table, in the end, Mrs May's plan is still there. And especially if it has been pulled and not voted down by Parliament, as we get into January or February, all of a sudden it's the only option apart from no deal. It begins to look more attractive. So the point is, it's really very simple. The people who do not want Mrs May's deal, but do not want a hard Brexit, have to solidify around a single option and drive it through Parliament. It is as simple as that. The moment they do, I think her deal will be dead. But until they do, it isn't. I agree very much with that. I think it's much more in the government's interest to actually put this vote down lose it if necessary, and then say, right, OK, we have lost, but we have only definitively lost when something else has a majority in Parliament. If nothing else has a majority, that is when they come but back I, the second time with vote. But I think you're ignoring the dynamic within the Conservative Party at that point, which is that if she is 
crushed in a major they parliamentary will come vote. For her. They will go after her. If she delays it, she has the opportunity to fight another day. So I think you have to factor that in as well. And that's it for this week's episode. Thank you very much to George, James, Miranda and Robert for joining us. In the meantime, if you like this podcast and would like to see more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Harry Robertson. Until next time, thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.